Welcome to the March 25th, 2021 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. In this week's edition, we look at the role of a previously unidentified variant of DNA methyltransferase 1 as a determinant of beta-thalassemia phenotype, Report on the association of vascular thromboembolism in cancer patients treated with immune checkpoint inhibitors. And finally, we explore preclinical models of acute erythroid leukemia using CRISPR-Cas9 hematopoietic genome editing. We begin with a paper by Yi Gong and Zhang Min Zhu of the Southern Medical University in Guangzhou, China and colleagues who report on the discovery of a natural mutation in DNA methyltransferase 1, or DNMT1, that reactivates the gamma globin gene in patients with beta-thalassemia, resulting in high levels of hemoglobin F. The beta-hemoglobinopathies become manifest during early development, following a switch from fetal to adult hemoglobin production, a process that is driven by repression of the gamma globin gene. However, Protection against disease manifestations is conferred by continued expression of fetal hemoglobin, or HBF, with the degree of protection relative to the level of expression of HBF protein. DNA methyltransferase 1, or DNMT1, is one of a group of epigenetic modifiers involved in the regulation of the gamma globin gene that are known to be responsible for the phenotypic heterogeneity of beta-hemoglobinopathies. DNMT1 maintains DNA methylation in the promoter, thereby regulating the formation of large macromolecular complexes that repress gamma globin expression. But little is known about whether normally occurring DNMT1 variants may affect beta-thalassemia phenotypes. In the current research, the investigators systematically explored these associations in a cohort of more than 1,100 beta-thalassemia patients in China. Target capture-based next-generation sequencing and Sanger sequencing were used to identify DNMT1 sequence variants as part of a panel of 50 candidate genetic modifiers associated with altered HBF levels. From this work, 10 potential HBF-regulating variants were initially identified. After further analysis, including identification of well-known BCL11A variants that influence HBF levels, only a single, novel heterozygous missense mutation emerged as a positive modifier. This mutation was characterized by the substitution of serine with phenylalanine at position 878, or S878F, of DNMT1, and was detected in three patients. Cox proportional hazards analysis revealed that the S878F mutation was associated with a milder form of beta-thalassemia, and with HBF levels that were threefold higher than in patients with wild-type DNMT1. To explore the precise mechanistic role of the S878F mutation in regulating the reactivation of gamma globin, the investigators analyzed the mutation's function through various in vitro assays using CD34-positive cells from four patients and in HUDEP2 cells engineered to express the S878F variant. First, the team characterized the effect of the mutation on interactions with co-regulatory proteins, finding that the mutated domain obstructs the formation of macromolecular complexes between DNMT1 and co-regulators. 
Using a specific antibody against the phosphorylated form of serine-878 in DNMT1, the researchers next demonstrated that S878F abrogates DNMT1 phosphorylation, resulting in impairment of both the molecule's stability and catalytic activity. Finally, the authors evaluated the impact of S878F on gamma globin expression and promoter methylation. They found that the mutation attenuated the interactions of DNMT1 with BCL11A, GATA1, and HDAC1 and 2, and reduced the recruitment of DNMT1 to the gamma globin promoter, leading to epigenetic derepression and increased gamma globin production. This increased production was associated with an increase in F cells in the patients. As a final experimental step, the researchers introduced the S878F mutation into erythroid cells using CRISPR-Cas9 and demonstrated that this recapitulated gamma globin reactivation. In conclusion, the current research identifies a novel missense mutation in DNMT1, S878F, that is associated with high HBF production and a mild beta-thalassemia phenotype, and it uncovers a mechanism by which this mutation epigenetically derepresses gamma globin expression and ameliorates beta-thalassemia severity. In an accompanying commentary, Yogan Santhararaja of Ohio's Cleveland Clinic points to several noteworthy facets of the research. First, he notes that the investigation was not a population-based genome-wide association study, but instead employed direct sequencing of 50 known candidate genes in a large cohort of beta-thalassemia patients, an approach that increased the power to identify rare variants associated with high HBF production. In addition, he notes that the discovery aligns with active clinical and preclinical efforts to upregulate HBF through the use of small molecules that inhibit or deplete DNMT1, and he points to the use of kinase inhibitors to block phosphorylation of DNMT1 S878 as a new therapeutic approach. Dr. Sontharaja sums up the work's significance as a demonstration that post-translational modification of a key co-repressor by a kinase-based pathway that is amenable to sensitive command and control is a method by which consecutive activation of a gene series is regulated. Our next paper is a study by Florian Moik, Sihan I, and colleagues at the Medical University of Vienna in Austria that looks at the incidence, risk factors, and outcomes of venous and arterial thromboembolism in association with immune checkpoint inhibitor, or ICI, therapy. ICIs have become one of the mainstays of treatment in multiple types of cancer and are associated with a variety of off-target autoimmune side effects. However, the risk of VTE or ATE with these agents has not been explored except in case reports. To investigate the association between ICI and thrombosis, the current authors performed a retrospective chart review of 672 patients treated with at least one dose of an approved ICI at the Medical University of Vienna from 2015 to 2018. To qualify for inclusion in the analysis, Diagnosis of a thrombotic event had to be verified by objective diagnostic imaging tests and confirmed by an independent committee. The most common cancers among the full cohort of ICI patients were melanoma and non-small cell lung cancer, representing 30% and 25% of cases, respectively. 
The large majority of patients, 85%, had stage 4 disease. Median age at the start of therapy was 64 years, and approximately 60% of the cohort was male. More than 90% of patients had an Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group Performance Index of 0 or 1, and the median Charlson Comorbidity Index was 8. Approximately 15% of patients had a history of VTE, and 10% had a history of ATE prior to treatment with ICI. At the initiation of therapy, 17% of patients underwent continuous anticoagulation, and 20% received antiplatelet therapy. The most commonly used checkpoint inhibitors were nivolumab and pembrolizumab, each used in approximately 40% of patients. The median number of treatment cycles was 7. Regarding treatment history, 15% of patients were in second- or third-line ICI therapy, and approximately 50% had received prior chemotherapy or radiation. The analysis of thromboembolic events revealed 47 venous thromboembolisms, or SVTEs, and 9 arterial thromboembolisms, or ATEs, over a median follow-up of 8.5 months representing cumulative incidences of VTE and ATE of 13% and 2% respectively. Median time to VTE was 4.2 months. The most frequent types of VTE were pulmonary embolism, occurring in 18 patients, and deep venous thrombosis in 17 patients. One VTE patient experienced a fatal PE, and one died under clinical suspicion of PE. Among the nine ATEs, there were four cases of acute coronary syndrome and three of ischemic stroke. One patient had a confirmed fatal event. The analysis revealed that VTE adversely affected survival. Over a median follow-up of two years, the occurrence of VTE was associated with both shorter overall survival, 12 months versus 26 months in those without VTE, and shorter progression-free survival, two months versus seven months, respectively. ATE was not associated with a mortality effect. By cancer type, the highest incidence of VTE was observed in gynecological and hepatic cancers, 27% and 16% respectively. The incidence of VTE in patients with melanoma, or NSCLC, was approximately 12%. Risk of VTE was comparable between different checkpoint inhibitors, with a cumulative incidence of events ranging from 10% for nivolumab to 20% for atezolizumab. Turning to clinical risk factors, a pretreatment history of VTE was associated with an elevated risk of VTE following ICI. 10 of 47 VTE patients, or 21%, had experienced a prior venous event. Of those, 5 occurred despite continuous anticoagulation at the time of recurrence. A higher incidence of VTE was observed in patients with stage 4 or metastatic disease compared to stages 1 to 3, 14% versus 5% respectively, but this difference failed to reach statistical significance. No association was observed between VTE risk and any other variable, including tumor stage or PDL1 status. Clinical performance scores, including ECOG, Charlson comorbidity, or Corona score, or with demographic factors or baseline antithrombotic therapy. VTE did not cause the discontinuation of immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy, but did result in a median delay of one week in the treatment cycle in 10% of patients with an event. ATE led to treatment discontinuation in one patient and caused a delay in therapy in one-third of patients 
ranging from 1.5 to 5.5 months. In summary, the findings from this large retrospective analysis demonstrate that treatment with ICIs substantially increases the risk of venous and arterial thromboembolism, and that VTE under ICI both exerts a strong adverse effect on clinical outcomes, including a decrease in overall survival, and is difficult to predict. In an accompanying commentary, John Bayer Westendorf at University Hospital in Dresden, Germany, points out that thromboembolism is a common complication of cancer and contributes significantly to excess mortality in these patients. Modern anti-cancer strategies should pay attention to thromboembolic risk, but surprisingly, he notes, the risk of thromboembolism from ICI therapies has not been systematically studied. Dr. Bayer Westendorf cites multiple implications of the current report. First, from a research perspective, safety findings of pivotal ICI clinical trials should be reevaluated with an eye towards thromboembolism, and new trials should be undertaken to better define the risk of VTE with ICI. Clinically, VTE risk prediction models should incorporate anti-cancer drugs with increased thromboembolic risks, thereby identifying more patients as candidates for thromboprophylaxis. And he adds, patients being treated with ICI should be educated about the signs and symptoms of thromboembolism and the importance of seeking prompt medical attention. Our final paper is by Ilaria Yakobucci and Charles Mulligan at St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, and colleagues, and examines modeling of erythroleukemia by using CRISPR-Cas9 genome editing to create mice with different combinations of mutations. Acute erythroid leukemia, or AEL, is a rare subtype of leukemia with a poor prognosis and is characterized by distinct morphology and mutational spectrum. Research into the genetic drivers of AEL has been hindered by the lack of preclinical models. The researchers began by selecting 10 genes to target in their experimental model based on human AEL mutational hotspots. From this, 14 genetically different leukemic models were established by CRISPR editing in primary recipient mice. Through the sequencing of edited sites and analysis of the leukemia genomes and transcriptomes, the team demonstrated that patterns of concomitant mutations were central determinants of tumor lineage. Specifically, they found that induction of AEL was associated with inactivation of B-Core and TRP53 which were co-mutated in all engineered AEL tumors, either alone or with DNMT3A, RB1, or NFIX mutations. Additionally, the researchers examined the leukemic phenotype of the established mouse models using gene expression data, which confirmed the leukemogenic role of the mutation studied and the importance of primary and secondary lesions in driving tumor lineage. Next, to explore the role of combinatorial mutations in promoting transformation and clonal evolution, the team performed single-cell DNA targeted sequencing of representative primary and passaged tumors. This analysis demonstrated first that transformation was accompanied by the expansion of multiple clones, with the dominant one usually showing the highest number of driver mutations, and second, that fluctuation in mutational clonal composition drove changes in leukemia phenotype within each model. Mutations in genes that affect methylation of the genome, specifically DNA methyltransferase 3A and TET2, proved to be particularly interesting 
The resulting changes in DNA methylation deregulated a set of genes that are known to control erythroid development, such as GATA1, KLF1, and NFE2. The investigators then used the mouse leukemias as a platform for drug screening, observing that sensitivity was associated with specific leukemic genotypes. Double mutant TRP53 and B-core AEL cells responded to the PARP inhibitor telazoparib and the demethylating agent decitabine. Triple mutant TRP53 B-core DNMT3A mutant AEL responded to CDK79 inhibitors, and gemcitabine and bromodomain inhibitors proved effective in NUP98 KDM5A disease. A limitation of the experimental approach was the lack of human AEL xenografts for validation of preclinical models. As an alternative, the team employed human TP53-mutated AEL cell line-derived xenografts, results from which mirrored those in the engineered models. In summary, through the use of multiplexed genome editing of hematopoietic precursors and transplant assays to develop preclinical models of AEL, the current research first provides evidence for a central role of mutational cooperativity in determining leukemic lineage and second, supports the association of combinatorial patterns of mutations with drug sensitivity in preclinical models of erythroleukemia. In their commentary, Jianping Zhang and Tao Cheng of the Chinese Academy of Medical Sciences and Peking Union Medical College in Peking, China, note that previous studies have shown that AEL patients often carry complex mutations in known AML-associated oncogenes, but the mechanisms by which these genes drive cells to erythroleukemia are poorly understood. The commentators acknowledge the current authors for producing the first CRISPR-led AEL mouse models, providing definitive evidence that mutations in both TRP53 and B-Core, in conjunction with additional events, such as signaling molecules and epigenetic modifiers, are associated with fully penetrant AEL in mice, work that sheds light, at least in part, on the cellular and molecular features underlying this type of leukemia. But the commentators point out that there are differences between the gene-editing-induced murine model in the current paper and the author's previously reported findings for human disease, as well as differences in observations from mouse AEL models previously established by the authors and others. Zhang and Cheng note that in future studies, the use by authors of TRP53 and B-Core knockout mice to establish AEL models might better simulate the more common heterozygous mutations in humans and thus definitively confirm the cooperative roles of TRP53 and B-Core mutations in AEL. Finally, the commentators note that while the models created by the St. Jude's team provide a potential platform for evaluation of pharmacologic agents for AEL, future work will be needed to verify the sensitivity of such drugs in primary human AEL cells, and ideally, in a human AEL patient-derived xenograft mouse model. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.